We are rejoining our studies today in 1 Corinthians, now in chapter 16, as Paul wraps up his letter with a few concluding issues. Looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and as soon as you turn there, you may begin to squirm because you're going to realize we're talking about giving in the church. That makes some people uncomfortable, especially the pastor. Uh, But to set your minds at ease and my mind at ease, I want to share a figure with you. It's a figure that the uh, elders received from the deacons this week, uh, and in due time, we weren't able to get it in the bulletin this week in our uh, regular summary, but Lord willing, we'll be able to get it in the bulletin next week as you see the summary of our session meeting. Uh, But the figure is 154,205. That is the total net budget surplus at the end of 2017 for Redeemer Church. That's an incredible figure. That is something that the elders and the deacons have both paused to praise the Lord for. Uh, And it's something that should uh, maybe reassure you that the pastor is not preaching about giving today uh, because he's got an axe to grind uh, or because he has anybody in particular in mind. Uh, But even with that number, Uh, We are preaching on giving today because this is the next thing we find in God's Word, and God's Word has wisdom for us and encouragement, and maybe even with that number, God's Word might have conviction for us as we come to consider His Word. Uh, That's also, by the way, a plug for you to come to our annual congregational meeting next week where you get the full picture uh, of that number and what will be done with it. Uh, but uh, that's the number that we've got, and something certainly to be praising the Lord for, uh, praising uh, Him for His gifts to us through you and through the generosity uh, of the church. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4 today. You find that on page 962 of our cart Bibles, and before we read God's Word, please let us pray together again. O gracious Lord, our God, we pray that as we come now to your word, you would open our eyes to see the things that you have for us, soften our hearts to rejoice in your goodness. Call us, O Lord, to see faithfulness in what it looks like in every area of our life, in the demands that you are well able to make of us in our morals, in our faith, in our pocketbooks. Lord, we pray that you would help us, O Lord, to be faithful to everything you call us to do. But help us, O Lord, to see today through your spirit and according to your wisdom uh, what you're calling us to do and how we can be generous. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and in errant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, you all know that when it comes to dealing with your finances, ambiguity is almost never a good thing. Think of every accountant 
every financial planner you've ever met, chances are they are not imprecise people. We call them bean counters for a reason. They are to be fastidious and precise and careful down to the last penny. That's what you want when somebody's dealing with your money. That's what we like when somebody is dealing with money. We want to be rid of ambiguity. We want precision. You know the same thing. You've ever labored to manage your household expenses and to establish a budget. You know how important it is to have precise categories for these things. Because it's all those expenses that you throw under that label, other. Those are the ones that grow beyond their proportions. And so if you're going to keep a tight budget, you need to get rid of ambiguity. Same is true if you've ever had to ask anyone for money. Nobody likes to do that. It's almost always awkward, even when it's for a good cause. And some of you here have been involved in short-term mission works or ministries where you have had to solicit funds from other people, and so you know what to do. You work hard on that fundraising letter. You try to be as clear and direct and precise as possible. You try to make your best case for why what you're doing is worthy of other people's support. You try to get rid of ambiguity. When it comes to dealing with our money, when it comes to giving our money, when it comes to asking for money, we like precision. We like it, uh, quite frankly, when all of our questions can be answered about our money, which is perhaps why it's so surprising why uh, some of the questions that me, we might want to ask about giving in these verses aren't the things that Paul wants to tell us about giving in these verses. There's a little bit of attention here. The things that we want to know and the things that God wants to tell us through Paul. What are some of the questions that we would ask uh, if we were dealing with money? Well, uh, if you were asked to give to people that you had never met, especially, we, we might ask, well, well, what is the need and how much is the need? How can we be sure that it's going to get there the right way? And how can we be sure that maybe doing something other than throwing money at this problem is, uh, is not the best way to go about it? We have lots of precise questions, and yet Paul comes back with some principled answers. We have, uh, we have bottom line questions, and Paul comes back uh, with the big picture, and there's a tension there. Let me suggest that it's in that tension between the things that we want to ask, the questions we have about what to do with our money, and what God wants to tell us how we uh, ought to deal with our money and our giving and our generosity. That's where the Lord can reshape our idea of what giving is meant to be. It's in these principles that Paul is going to give us, and so we're going to do something a little bit different today. We are going to look at five, not three. Thank you, Frank. We're going to look at five principles from these four verses about godly giving and godly generosity. Let me give them to you all at the beginning, and we'll walk one by one through them. The five principles I think that we can find here, you might find more later. Unity, worship, responsibility, planning, and wisdom. Unity, worship, responsibility, planning, and wisdom. Well, unity is the first of these that grabs our attention. Though it might not be the first question on our minds when we begin to read these verses. But it's the idea that generosity in the church is really an expression of Christian unity. If you were approached by someone looking for a donation, somebody that wanted some of your money, the first question you might ask is why, uh, and the second question might be how much. You begin to ask those specific questions. You begin to ask, well, why is there a need in the first place? 
And how can I know that the need that you have is really worthy of my attention? You know, that's why the person who's on the street corner, the guy with the dirty jacket and the cardboard sign, very often gets ignored. Because when you see him, you've already made up your mind that whatever need he has probably isn't worth your time. He's probably on that corner because he's made bad decisions, and anything you give him might just be spent on drink or drugs. That might be right. There might be some legitimate reasons why handout isn't always the best idea, but the basic principle is that we decide whether to give or not to give based on our reading of the situation, how we've discerned the need that is there. Is it worthy of our attention? But the problem here is that Paul doesn't tell us anything about the specific need of the saints in Jerusalem. We might gather that the Corinthians probably already knew about this. Probably the first time that Paul was among them, he told them all about uh, this need in Jerusalem, and so they might already have known that it was a worthy cause. And it's also true uh, that the Bible gives us some clues in the New Testament to piece together what this need might have been. Some scholars suggest that the need was uh, connected to a famine that was happening in Judea in that time. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 11. In those days, the prophet Agabus foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. There's a clue. Maybe this has to do with this famine that's going on at the time. And then we also understand from the New Testament that it was really in Jerusalem in the early ages of the church that Christians faced the greatest persecution. It was the Jewish believers that were being pulled out of the synagogues and out of the social and the economic life uh, of their communities. Paul himself had been involved in seeing that Jews were treated in just such a way. And many Jews who converted and began to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ likely lost their jobs. Maybe their homes and their families, maybe their inheritances, ways of supporting themselves. And so perhaps in addition to a famine, they were in great and dire need. And then we also gather in the, in the book of Acts that the need was so great, even the beginning of the church, that everyone was compelled, at least at that time, and it's spoken of as something that was laudable in the beginning of the church, not something that's commanded, but something that was laudable, that they began to give and sell all that they had to support one another. You know, that sort of thing only lasts so long, and maybe now those who were supporting others were in need of support themselves as this famine and this persecution was going on. We can, we can wager a guess about some of these things, but the truth is that none of that takes Paul's focus here at the end of this letter. He had no qualms about going on and on about some of the other issues, but here it's very clear. He doesn't tell us about the need. He doesn't tell us about the circumstances or hard providences or bad choices. What does he tell us? He tells us they were saints, and that's it. And that ought to be enough for Paul, that these were God's people. These were God's chosen people, members together with the Corinthians, though they were hundreds and hundreds of miles away, they were members of one body. They were saints together with them. And that's been a big theme throughout the whole letter, hasn't it? Here we see this church that's divided into different factions and cliques, backbiting against one another, and the whole way through, Paul's been telling them, Christ is not divided what he said in chapter 12, into one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And he takes these people who are at opposite ends of the social spectrum, people who in normal life would have nothing to do with one another, and he lumps them together. He says, you're members together in one body, and Christ is not divided. How do we know that this is a worthy need in Jerusalem, Paul? Well, because they're saints, because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the only reason Paul could hope to get a bunch of Gentiles living in Corinth to give up some of their hard-earned capital and send it almost a thousand miles away to Jews living in Jerusalem. As if they knew that they were part of one body, that when they are joined to Christ, they are joined to everyone else who is joined to Christ. This is how Paul began his letter. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 2, he said, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, those saints, in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And folks, giving in the church ought to reflect that. Giving in the church, our Christian generosity, is an expression of unity in Christ. That's what it's meant to be. When we give, we help other believers who are in need, and it shows solidarity in the body. You know how it happens. That offering plate is passed and you drop your checks or your bills in there and it goes to raise up church planners in Dorchester and New Haven and Worcester. It goes to help missionaries who are in Uganda and South Africa and Japan. It goes to Clinton to help uh, First Concern Pregnancy Resource Center and their ministry to parents and their babies. It goes to Haiti, it goes to lots of different places, but it's all one body and it's a show of Christian unity. That's what our giving and our generosity is all about. And then once a month, also, we've got that deacon's offering, that uh, that second offering, squeezing a little bit more, but what is it? It's going to help those. Maybe they need food, maybe they need transportation, maybe they need to have some bills paid, and they're right here in our body very often. It's a show of Christian unity. That's what our generosity ought to be. It's a visible sign to us and to the rest of the world that care of believers one to another transcends geographic and ethnic distances. We are members of one body in Christ. So far as the Lord has given us ability, our hearts and our wallets ought to be open to those who are in need. That's the first principle we need to know. That giving is uh, an act of unity. It's an expression of unity. Secondly is worship. That generosity in the church is an act of worship. And when I began studying this text, I found something that to me was very curious. And that is that scholars were pretty strongly divided on whether or not this collection was to be made individually at home or is to be brought together week after week. And there are legitimately arguments on either side that sound pretty good. My own reading is that it was to be brought together uh, when the church gathered, but we also have to deal with some questions of the language. It talks about putting aside and storing up. That sounds like uh, individual piggy banks at home so that it can be brought together at the very end. We have to deal with the the historical realities of where exactly would a a common church treasury be placed when the church is still meeting in, in houses and scattered all out, likely, throughout um, Corinth. And so where would the church put everything together? But, uh, you know, I never really considered the implications of doing it either way, and maybe you haven't either. 
course, those are the questions that we like to ask about money. We like to ask about the methods. We want to know uh, whether the best way to give our money to the church is that the church might prefer cash. Or maybe I can give checks so that at the end of the year I can get that statement and I can take it with me to my tax return and I can claim all those things. Maybe the best way to deal with uh, my finances is to hold on to them all year long and collect the interest and then give at the end of the year. We want to know if uh, the church will accept donations of stocks or bonds or Bitcoin or whatever else. We want to know all about the best method to give, and Paul doesn't talk about the method all that much. I think we can infer, but his focus is more on the timing of our giving. That's the explicit statement he makes in this passage. He says it should be done by each person each week on the first day of the week. Now, that first day of the week didn't have anything to do with when you got paid in the ancient world. But it had everything to do with when you gathered together with brothers and sisters in Christ to worship. It was the first day of the week, you remember, when Jesus was raised from the dead. It was on several consecutive first days of the week that Jesus met with his disciples. You can find that in John chapter 20. Or in Acts chapter 20, you can find that on the first day of the week, even after Paul had been with the disciples for about seven days already, it was on the first day of the week that they gathered together to break bread and to pray, and Paul preached so long that somebody fell out of a window. But it happened on the first day. It was this day, it was in the context of praising the Lord, gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ to break bread and to pray and to hear the word of the Lord. It's in that context that Paul says this ought to be given. What does that mean? It means that Christian generosity is an act of worship. Folks, when we stop to collect the Lord's tithes and offerings, as I often say it before the sermon, that's not just a chance for you to make sure that your chair is comfy. It's not just some breathing space for me to get my notes ready. We are continuing to worship. That's what we're doing. We give out of hearts that are thankful for having received everything from the Lord's hand. It's part of our spirit-inspired response. That's what we've been talking about in Sunday school. We've been talking about true and false worship. This whole person response to who the Lord is and what he's done, and part of that whole person response is giving of our resources. It's part of our spiritual worship. In chapter 6, Paul told the Corinthians that because they had been bought with a price, they ought to glorify God with their bodies. I think it would be just as right to say that because we've been bought with a price, we ought to glorify God with our finances and our giving and our generosity. This is part of our spiritual worship. And here's the amazing thing. Not only is our giving an act of worship in the singular, but our giving and our generosity in the church actually produces other acts of worship. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians again about a year later about the same issue. Uh, and uh, turn with me there to, to 2 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 9. We're going to see a little bit more about what Paul has in mind here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ 
and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. They long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul says when you are generous and it ends up in the hands of other believers, they will praise God. Your act of worship creates other acts of worship. And your act of worship comes from what you profess about who Christ is. It's directly related. What you do with your wallet and your checkbook is directly related to what you believe about who the Lord is. Where we worship Him as those who have received everything from His hand. Folks, I wonder if this is the sort of thing that we pray about. When is it that you pray to prepare your hearts for worship? Maybe it's Saturday night. Maybe it's Sunday morning before you leave to come to church with your family. Maybe it's in those few minutes as the prelude is being played and you're preparing your hearts for worship. But how many of us pray, Lord, help me today to worship you with sacrificial generosity. Lord, help me to give as someone who's received everything from you. Help me to rejoice that I get to give to others some of what you've given to me and it all belongs to you, by the way. If that's not the way that we're praying before worship, maybe we ought to start. That's what our generosity ought to be. It's an act of worship. Third, you see from Paul that generosity in the church is everyone's responsibility. Generosity is everyone's responsibility. Now, if you needed to raise some money for a cause, and you had your choice of which givers to start with, where would you start? If you are working to raise some money for a tech startup and you need investors, you've already got the poster board and it's got that big thermometer drawn on it. And every time money comes in, you add a little bit more red and you need to get that red all the way to the top until the thermometer is bursting. Where do you start? Well, if you can do it, you start with the big fish, don't you? You look for the person in the room with the deepest pockets. You find that Warren Buffett or that Jeff Bezos, and you, you, contribute, you, you get them to contribute. You convince them that, hey, this is a worthy cause. Please invest with us. Because if they will invest, it's okay if you lose one or two of the little guys along the way, isn't it? You're set as long as you get the big ones, but that's not how giving works in the church. Paul says this falls on everyone. Yes, God has his big fish. It says right there in Romans 12 that some are specifically gifted for generosity. They have gifts to give. They have a heart that is maybe a little more cheerful than you and I are when we give. And not everybody has the gift in the same measure, but that doesn't mean that all the giving in the church ought to come only from the people who have a vacation home in the Berkshires and a yacht on Cape Ann. It's supposed to come from everyone. It is everyone's responsibility. Those who have a lot and those who have little, those who are old and those who are young, what's he say? Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, what do you notice in that passage there, in that verse? You notice the language of a command, don't you? This is not good advice. This is apostolic authority. This is coming from the Spirit of God. Of course, someone says, well, I thought we were supposed to be cheerful givers. I thought we were supposed to give as we've determined in our hearts and not under compulsion. How can you speak to me of a command to give? And that's true. God loves a cheerful giver. You know what else God loves? 
He loves when his people count it all joy when they face trials of various kinds. You know what else God commands? He commands us to rejoice in the Lord always and to be anxious for nothing. But folks, you know that those things aren't easy, don't you? To rejoice in the Lord always, to be constant in prayer, steadfast in affliction, to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. And you say, sometimes I don't feel like rejoicing, so how can you command me to do that sort of thing? You know those are things that are hard, and sometimes they come more easily, sometimes they're more difficult, sometimes you have to pray through those things and struggle through those things and scrap and fight for faithfulness in those things. So it is with giving. The Lord wants you to give cheerfully. You'll never give cheerfully if you don't start giving, though. If you don't begin somewhere, you'll never get to the point where it's just hilarious. That's the word in 2 Corinthians, by the way. The Lord loves hilarious givers. <laughs> Let's just give it all away. That's what he wants. But you'll never get there if you don't start at the beginning, at least, and recognizing the responsibility that we have. Of course, not everybody's going to be able to give the same amount. There's some language of proportion here. And no, Paul doesn't give us a figure, much as we would like to have a figure much as we want a percentage that we can say, ah, this far must I go and no farther. He doesn't do that, but he does say that there's going to be some proportion there. That means that well-established adults, if you've got a high-paying job, you will be able to give more and you ought to be able to give more and you ought to give more than the teenager living in your house who has a part-time job with minimum wage. It also means, though, that kids, if you've got an allowance of $2 a week, you're not going to be able to give very much, but you ought to be giving something. And that's one of the best rules and, uh, and things that parents can teach their children, a good practice to learn to serve the Lord, whether it's a dime a week. Put it in the offering plate. Recognize this responsibility. Giving in the church is everyone's responsibility. Number four, generosity in the church requires planning, requires planning. We've seen already uh, that it expresses unity, that it's an act of worship, that it's everyone's responsibility, and now we see that generosity in the church requires planning. Now, in verse two, Paul says he wants the Corinthians to be prepared with their gift before he comes to them. He's talking about a collection day. And here, Paul actually is speaking our language. We know all about this. We know all about being prepared for a collection. If you listen to National Public Radio, you know that several times a year, they're going to warn you on such and such a week, we're going to stop and we're going to ask you to give us your money. And all during that week, they're going to tell you that if we raise enough money by Friday, it's all over. Here's the date. Here's where the collection has to come in. And you know that the IRS wants you to be ready with your tax return by April 15th or else. So we know what it is to plan. And, and just like the IRS, Paul has a collection date in mind. It may not be as set in stone as April 15th. Later in verses 5 through 9, Lord willing, we'll see this next week, Paul tells them that he's planning to stay where he is in Ephesus until after Pentecost. Then he plans to travel through Macedonia and then finally to come into Corinth and to visit them, and he wants them to get ready. You ought to plan for this collection. Now, I bet we can think of a few reasons why planning for our giving is a good idea. A few practical things. 
Well, for one, it will allow you to gather more than you otherwise would if it was just sort of spur of the moment, especially when so a few of us carry cash. If you were in a place and they said, we're going to gather a love offering, how much could we scrap together? Maybe a couple hundred dollars. But what if you were working all year? You know, at the end of the year in fall, we uh, send uh, action packs through Voice of the Martyrs to persecuted believers around the world. And in about a month, we put together about 50 of those bags. Could you imagine how many of those bags we could put together and with minimal effort if we started in January, if we were working on it all year? What if we were filling baby bottles for first concern all year long and not just one month out of the year? And how easy a thing it would be to put a little bit away and a little bit away and so planning your giving allows more to be gathered. Paul wants this gift to be substantial meaningful, and that works best when you plan for it. Planning your giving also keeps everyone from being embarrassed, by the way. In 2 Corinthians, again, Paul said that he had been boasting to the Macedonian churches about the Corinthians and their generosity. And he reminded them a second time that they ought to be ready when he comes. And here's what he said. I'm sending brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you would be ready, as you said you would, uh, when I come. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and they find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. You know, it can be embarrassing, especially if you have told someone that you will help them and then you don't follow through. It's embarrassing for the person who comes back and says, you know, I'm, I'm still in need here. It's embarrassing for you when you say, oh, I, yeah, I meant to do that, but I didn't care all that much to set it aside and write it down in my calendar and make sure that it was done. And a little bit of forethought saves a whole lot of faith. That's what Paul's telling us. And so our generosity, our giving ought to, be, you know, ought to be planned. Lastly, though, and I think this is the most important of the practical reasons that we could think through why planning is a good thing in our giving, is that it allows our giving not to be pressured. You've attended those fundraising dinners. You've sat there at your table of eight, and everyone's having a good time. Uh, you've gotten the chicken or maybe the fish. The dinner is over, and the entertainment is waning, and then that person stands up, and they, says, they say, I'd like you to take the collection cards and the pledge cards that, by the way, have conveniently been placed at the center of your table. We'd like you to dig deep and give as much as you're able to. And heaven forbid you're going to sit there with the rest of those seven people at your table and be the only person not filling out that card. There's a reason those things are done that way. A little bit of peer pressure goes a long way. It can loosen your grip on your wallet in a way that you did not expect, but Paul doesn't want that. He says, when I come, I don't want to be the one who's standing over you saying, pay up. Saying, I want you to do it thoughtfully. I want you to plan for this. I want this to be something that you pray about. There was a, uh, an early church document called the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve. It wasn't part of Scripture, uh, and people debate whether it was actually tied to the original Twelve Apostles as it says it was. But one of the things in the first chapter of the Didache that it tells Christians to do, it's this nice little phrase. It says, let your alms sweat in your hand until you know who you should give it to. We talked in the previous section of that document about being ready and willing to give to whoever asks of you, but don't just do it impulsively. Don't do it under pressure. Think about it and pray about it and plan it. 
and use a little bit of sanctified wisdom. That's what our generosity ought to be. It ought to be planned. It ought to be purposeful. That's why I want to let you know that we're going to have just a little bit of a change uh, in our service. And that is that on the first week of each month, we're going to begin reminding you of the deacon's offering that will be collected on the second week of each month. Just so that you know, just so that you're aware, not so that we can stand over you and the pastor says, I think there's someone in row 13 who didn't put in their alms this week. But so that you're ready. So that you can say and you can go home and, and maybe look through your own finances or talk with your family and say, what can we give to the needs of those who are in our church? We're going to start doing that. And it's because we want our giving to be planned. We want it to be true Christian generosity. And that's what it is. Now just one more. And see, we've almost made it through a five-point sermon. One more principle that we need to know about generosity in the church, and that is that it's directed by wisdom. It's directed by wisdom. You know, for all of Paul's authority, do you notice the way that he does not feel the need to micromanage this collection? That might be what you expect him to do. might be the way that you would do it or the way that I would do it, to step in and say, all right, Corinthians, thank you for gathering it. We'll take it from here. Thank you very much. We're the ones who know who needs this money, and we're the ones who can get it there the best way possible. Paul had every right to do that. He was an apostle. He could uh, demand that the church do whatever. Paul doesn't do that. He assumes that the church is capable enough. He assumes that the church is wise enough to deal with their own giving. Now, can you imagine that? Fractured, backbiting, morally confused Corinth, and yet Paul says, you choose the men and I'll write the letters and we'll send them on their way. He says, I'll go along with what you're doing because the Lord gives wisdom to his people as they gather together, and that's what our giving ought to be directed by. It ought to be directed by wisdom. There's a certain seriousness to these things. The burden of decision lies with the church. The Corinthians need to handle these things as carefully as they are able. Folks, you know what happens when the wrong people in the church are in charge of the money. You've heard the horror stories. Maybe you've attended one of the horror stories. And the gospel is undermined, and believers are jaded, and unbelievers add one more tack to the reasons that they can disregard everything that we're telling them about faith and hope and love and Jesus Christ. And they see the way that things blow up when the wrong person is in charge and has their hand in the cookie jar. There's a need in the church to be as wise as we possibly can with our giving. This is one of the reasons that I am so glad that I couldn't write a check in this church to save my life. I have no idea what any of you give. I don't want to know. Thank you very much. There's a separation. It's the same way that Paul did it. He said, in essence, I'm not taking your money. You're going to deal with your money. I don't want anything to do with it. They can go with me. I'd be glad to to have traveling companions as I go. But you need to pick wise men to steward these things. Folks, this is why you need to be praying for our deacons. This is the burden that falls on them, officers in the church, men of wisdom and integrity, the men who write the checks and put together the budgets and count the beans. Pray for our deacons. Pray also in a couple weeks when the session will bring before you 
a few more names of men who have been examined and are ready to be elected or not elected by you, the congregation, to serve as more deacons in our church. This is something we need to do wisely and thoughtfully and prayerfully. We need to be in prayer for these brothers, that the Lord would give them integrity and generosity and wisdom. So here we have, folks, five principles for generous giving and godly giving in the church. Unity and worship, responsibility and planning and wisdom. May the Lord give us the grace of His Spirit to grow in each of these together. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would have been teaching us today something about our need uh, to be generous for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and not to be unwise, to be worshipful in the way that we give of our finances. Help us, O Lord, in this most practical of matters in the church. Help us to rely upon you and to rejoice and to be cheerful in the way that we see that you have given us all things. You have blessed us in Christ Jesus with life and hope and forgiveness in the gospel. So help us to realize this and to submit ourselves to you and to one another and to give of ourselves for the sake of Christ we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.